Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day everyone, it's Baz Dubois and this is Hammer at Home. I feel as a race and me personally as an individual, I just don't think we're doing enough to nurture the planet and provide the cultural stability, the food and the environment that humans need to flourish. We all like to think we're doing the right thing, using our keep cups and avoiding one-use plastics, and we are. But there's so much more we have to do as a culture. Until we start valuing humanity, sustainability and the planet, we're just going to continue down the wrong track. This needs a complete rethink, and we are the only people that can guide that rethink. Now we know what carbon is and why sustainability is so important. But in the face of such devastating consequences, why do we keep repeating the same behaviours that we know are bad over and over again? It's a simple question, but it's going to take an expert to answer it. Kim Borg, it's great to have you on this podcast. Kim, tell me what it is you do and what you're passionate about. Sure. So I am a research fellow at Behaviour Works Australia, which is an applied behavioural research unit at Monash Sustainable Development Institute. I'm a behavioural scientist, but mostly I'm focused on health. And the thing that I'm most passionate about is environmental behaviours. Tell me this then, Kim. How come I find it so difficult to just turn my phone off? Oh, I know the answer to this one. One of my colleagues doing a PhD at the same time as me is doing his on something called nomophobia. And that's where you genuinely have a fear of not being with your phone or not knowing what's on your phone. And it's become a real psychological problem in this day and age. So there you go. Unless you're actually just talking about difficulty in managing the phone, in which case. (laughs) Physically, I can turn it off. But mentally, now that's where I have a problem. For me, the busier life gets, the more addicted I get to my phone. The more I have to have it right beside my bed, the more I have to turn it on as soon as I wake up. But then, the more relaxed and balanced I get, I'm more likely just to leave it at home or even forget it when I go for a morning walk. Yeah, absolutely. And that's because you're, in in your case, I'm guessing a lot of the stress and busyness is coming through the phone. It's phone calls, it's emails, it's, you know, having to do things and getting notifications and We do get a little bit of a um, dopamine, serotonin. One of the happy chemicals goes off every time we get a notification. Now, whether that is linking to something good or bad, we don't know, but we're just like, oh, oh, there's a notification coming through. And that's the exact same method that poker machines use because they have all the happy lights going off where it's like, ah, something's happening. I just lost a lot of money, but it's something happy is happening. If someone's told that something's bad for them, Poker machines are a great example, but things like smoking, sugary drinks, fatty foods, what's the psyche behind that? Why do we still do those things we're told and we know they're so bad for us? Human behavior is influenced by a lot of different factors and information is one of it. So being told smoking is bad, you know, fatty foods are bad, but it's a much smaller part than we really give it credit for because there's a lot of other things that influence our behavior that are harder to control and are not even necessarily in our conscious minds. Things like emotions or habits or biases that we may or may not be aware of that we have. 
And then there are more conscious things like, you know, do we have the opportunity to do it or do we have the skills and the capability? And all these things coming together influence our behavior. So, you know, I know that eating healthy food is good for me, but fatty food just tastes so good and it makes me feel good and I get my little, you know, dopamine release from eating chocolate. So it's the conscious mind and the unconscious mind playing together and that's what we end up making decisions. Humans aren't always rational in their decision-making, but it's not necessarily a bad thing either. And that's because the unconscious or the subconscious decisions that we make are really a way of taking the mental load off of our brains. Because if we had to sit down and make a real thoughtful, deliberate decision every time we had to make a decision, we would be exhausted by lunchtime because it actually takes a lot of mental effort. So these shortcuts, things like habits and bias and emotion, can help us make decisions a lot quicker without really giving it much thought. So what you're saying then is we're learning to make bad decisions because we haven't got time to think about it. Uh, in some ways, we make bad decisions, not necessarily because we don't have time, but because we get maybe some sort of other benefit from it. So for example, you know, eating healthy food, we don't sit down and, you know, make a decision about, okay, well, what's my intention in this moment? Do I want to eat healthy or how many calories are in this? How much running will I have to do if I eat this? We go, you know what? I feel like eating chocolate because I know it makes me feel good. I'm going to eat some chocolate. And that thought happens in a split second, probably doesn't even become a conscious thought. We just look at the chocolate, we know we're for good, we eat the chocolate. So we do make a lot of bad decisions because of that heuristic, that kind of mental shortcut, but we can also make some really good decisions because of taking advantage of those shortcuts. I was going to ask, what is it in the brain that makes us choose those bad things over common sense decisions? And what you're saying is it's not necessarily even going deep into the brain. It's just the way we've created shortcuts. Yeah, so I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch, but it really is just the difference between how much mental capacity we have for making decisions and how important that decision is for us. So, you know, I use the example of buying a house, which has a bit of both in it, because if you're going to go and buy a house, it's a very big financial decision. It's a very big lifestyle decision. So there's going to be quite a big element of deliberate, thoughtful decision making. But buying a house is also a bit of an emotional experience. So you're going to walk into a place and be like, oh, do I love it? Do I like the feel of it? And those decisions happen very unconsciously. So the two of them playing together can make a decision happen. And, you know, I had an example recently where we may have let emotion trump rational decision making. We put an offer on a house, it got accepted. And then the very next day, we looked at it rationally and went, oh God, this is not the decision we should make. Let's back out, let's back out. And we ended up invoking the, um, the, the cooling off clause. So the two of them can definitely happen together. And which one ends up winning depends on a whole bunch of other factors as well. What you've just said is something I hear all the time. People get emotional at auctions. They, they'll be twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollars more than they can. They already know they can really afford. I mean, sometimes it works out. But I'm interested in what you said that we take so many shortcuts. If we've set these shortcuts up and some of them are wrong, are we just going to keep doing them wrong just because it's a shortcut? When will we realize, or do we realize, that we're doing something wrong? The mental shortcuts aren't necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, you can help use them to your advantage. One of the great shortcuts that we have is habits. So habits are behaviors that we do without giving it a lot of thought. We tend to do them in pretty stable ways. So no matter where we are, we'll probably do the same thing. And if we know that we want to do a particular behavior, 
that doesn't necessarily guarantee that we will do it. That's something called the intention action gap. So I might intend to, for example, you know, bring a reusable bag with me every time I leave the house so that I don't end up with the horrible plastic shopping bags. But I'll forget every time I leave the house to bring it with me. So what I can do is try and pair that good habit that I want to form with an existing habit I already have. So, you know, we talked about being afraid to not have your phone on you earlier. I know that every time I leave the house, I will take my phone with me. So if I can try and just mentally pair having a phone and having a bag. So when I leave the house, I will grab my, my phone, my wallet, my keys and my reusable bag. I can then try and use that mental shortcut, that positive mental shortcut of habits to embed a new positive behavior. I love that. I think uh, we should be talking about that a lot more. Like how do we pair things that we know are good with things that we do by habit? There's a real life lesson right there. But I'm still concerned about the habits that we've formed in our mind that aren't necessarily good decisions. So what I want to know is how much of an effect do you think media has on us when we're forming these habits? Media is something that I have actually been studying in a bit of detail. I've done my PhD looking at media and its influence on social norms relating to single-use plastic avoidance. And specifically, when I'm talking about social norms, it's this idea of what do we think everyone else is doing? Because another mental shortcut we take is social norms. What's everyone else doing? What are other people approve and disapprove of? So if I walk into a shopping center and see that everyone in that shopping center is using reusable bags, I kind of, I will feel guilty if I don't have a reusable bag. I see that the norm in that case is using it. So going back to this idea of media, one of the things that I found in my research is that media can actually influence what we perceive as normal. So if we see something called social modeling where people in, you know, neighbors, if everyone in neighbors is using a reusable coffee cup when they go to the cafe, then that behavior becomes something that we go, okay, well, that's very normal. And we know that media can influence our perceptions. It's not a massive influence, but it can influence our perceptions about what's normal and also around whether it's more beneficial or less beneficial to do a particular behavior. And taken together, that can end up influencing a whole range of different behaviors from plastic avoidance through to climate change mitigation. I think it was um, after watching An Inconvenient Truth, there were quite a lot of people that then, you know, tried to cut down on their driving or consume less red meat and a whole range of other things. But what we know is that if you only watch one, one movie, one documentary, one show, once you might have a little burst of uh, encouragement and want to do that behavior in the short term, but it probably won't last because the power of habits is quite embedded. We can kind of use it as a kicking off point, but it's a bit short term. Truly interesting. As you're saying it, I'm thinking about the things that I've watched and how they've influenced me. I'm sure you'll hear my producer laugh in the background when I say that I watched Game Changer and David Attenborough on the same night. The next day, yep, you guessed it, I was a vegan. <laughs> well, effectively, I was a vegan. It, it lasted a week, so I celebrated with ice cream on the Friday. And then we have roasts on Sunday and you can't miss out on a roast. So I became a midweek vegan. And the funny thing is, when I maintain that diet for two or three days, I feel the benefits from it. There's no doubt about it. But my habit is still going to have me go for that block of chocolate if it's in the fridge. I'll have that extra scoop of ice cream. 
So media and social media. Is social media more impactful or less impactful than mainstream media when it comes to these behavioral messages? Social media is a really interesting one. It's still relatively new in terms of the research landscape because social media is still relatively new. We've had TV for decades and decades now, whereas social media has only really been around for, what, sort of 10 to 15 years, not even? So the research coming out is still pretty new, but what we do know is that with social media, because of that additional social element, it can be a bit more powerful. There's a lot of research saying that our trust in traditional media from the news has been declining over the years. We don't really trust news as much as we used to. But when it comes to our friends and family, we definitely trust their advice. So if we're on social media and we're getting a message from someone that they're you know, sharing a news article, then that sends us information about what's important to that person. So it's a bit of information about that person, but it also tells us what that person is probably doing. So it tells us a bit about their behavior. So the example I use is if a plastic bag ban is being introduced as one was in Victoria recently and a news article comes out talking about the plastic bag ban, if someone on social media then shares that article, then they are signaling to their network that this is an issue that's important to them and it's probably a behavior that they consider normal. So again, kind of builds on that power of social norms. I was going to ask the question, if we show our friends videos of the damage that different things are doing to the environment, is that enough to change their thinking or their behavior? And you're saying it is enough. The strongest part about social norms is what we believe the people closest to us are doing and what we believe the people closest to us approve and disapprove if we do. So sharing information about, you know, the the habitat loss that's being caused by deforestation or the damage to marine environments from plastic pollution. If we share video clips or images or news stories about that to our networks, then it can it can hit them in kind of multiple ways because it can give them some information and we know that information can be helpful so they can learn about the damages caused by these elements which may have a behavioral part to them. But it also says that that's something that's important to my friend. And if it's, you know, for example, my husband or my mum, people who are very close to me, whose opinions I value, then I may change my behavior to kind of align with that. For example, when I started my PhD, looking at single-use plastics, my poor husband, who is not an environmentalist by any stretch, had to adapt to a whole bunch of new behaviors, not because I forced him to, but because he knew it was something that was important to me. So he started using a reusable water bottle, using reusable bags. He even bought me some gifts of, you know, reusable produce bags and things like that. So the people who are closest to us tend to have the biggest influence on our behavior. And I guess simply, as you said, that became his new normal as well. Can I ask a question off the back of that? Do you think that he has become more of an environmentalist or is he just trying to please you? I think through our relationship, his attitude towards the environment has probably changed a little bit. When it comes to his motivation for doing those plastic avoidance behaviors, I think the motivation comes more from the norm of me. (laughs) So it comes more from that idea of, you know, my wife thinks this is important, therefore I will do it, rather than his attitude towards the environment. And I think that's really key because we often think that if we can get everyone to care about a problem, then they will do the behaviors to stop that problem or to address that problem. And we know that that's not the case because it's not just our attitudes that influence our behavior. And in fact, if we can find a 
different motivational point, we can encourage people to do the behaviors that are better for the environment or better for their own health, but via a different means. So my husband is very motivated by economic side of things. So I took him to a, um, a presentation where someone was talking about having plants in the office can improve the mental well-being of office workers, which reduces the amount of mental health days that people need to take, which from a financial perspective, improves productivity and reduces time off. Now he's a business owner. So he went, that's fantastic. I'm going to get all these plants and put them in the office because I know that it'll be good for my business with the side benefit that it's also better for the mental health of the, the employees as well. So it's kind of looking for different motivations for the behaviours that you want people to engage in. I think it's an interesting one. I'm well known for saying you can't look at environmental sustainability without looking at cultural sustainability and without looking at economic sustainability. If you look at any one of those as an individual, you won't have sustainability right across society because we all need those three things to be working equally. So with the average population, I mean, I get it. A lot of people don't think the way I do. Is it just that they're so vague about global warming because they believe it doesn't affect them? I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to climate change and global warming is that it is something that requires collective action. So it's not just my individual behavior, it's also the actions of businesses or governments. And in fact, in those cases, some of those actions will have much bigger repercussions and my behavior will still be effective, but it's probably a smaller part of it. The other issue is that the effect of climate change or even the impacts on the environment feel very psychologically distant. So things like sea level rising, if I live in in rural Victoria, away from the ocean, I'm probably not really going to associate sea level rise with something that will impact me as a person or something like, you know, crazy changes in weather patterns and increased storm and increased drought. It feels like something that's going to happen very much in the future. It's not something that's necessarily going to affect me as an individual or I don't, I don't know about it which makes it a bit harder to encourage individuals to take individual level action because it feels like someone else's problem. That's fascinating. Can you talk further about that? How do we teach ourselves to be more aware of global and societal problems? And I guess think less about our individual needs right now. Is it possible? Is that too big an ask? <laughs> well, some of the techniques that they've found that have been effective in this space are making the problems more at an individual level rather than at a kind of global or a, a distant level and through methods like storytelling. So coming back to the, um, you know, the effects of media, some of the powerful things that media can do is to use individual stories and to use emotion as a bit of a pull to show an individual how this huge global problem like climate change is actually affecting individuals who are just like you and me. And we know that if we can draw on these feelings of emotion, then we can draw on something like empathy, which again taps into that unconscious or the less conscious part of the brain. So we're not necessarily thinking about deliberate thoughts and decision making. Again, something that came out of my research where I showed people different video clips from different documentaries about plastic pollution. And the clip that was most likely to encourage people to change their perceptions and their behaviors was the one that drew on people's heartstrings. It made them feel shocked. It made them feel sad. 
the clip itself was from a film called Drowning in Plastic and it featured scientists encouraging a baby bird to regurgitate the contents of its stomach so they could count how much plastic was coming out. And it, it was quite emotional to watch. So you, you understand why people responded to it. So that's, that's one way of doing it. Just to yeah, bring it down to an individual or personal level and to show people that the problem is affecting people just like them. Everything you said is clear and obvious. So it begs the question, why don't we do things that are good for us? Why do we have an emotional tie-in? Why can't we just use some common sense as a human race? Are we rational thinkers? (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes we will sit down and weigh the pros and cons and we'll use as much brain processing power as necessary to make a decision. But other times we will behave, you know, irrationally because it takes so much time and effort to make those thoughtful, deliberate decisions. Instead, we will make snap judgments, we'll let our habits or we'll let our emotional side take the steering wheel. We, we, it's basically like going on autopilot. You know, if you had to make all those thoughtful, deliberate decisions all of the time, you would be so exhausted. It is okay. It's completely, it's wired into our evolution that we will take these mental shortcuts. It's meant to make our lives easier and and better. And it does. It means that we can focus our difficult mental energy on the things that require it and make snap judgments to (laughs) uh, lighten the mental load. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Help me understand this. I started my apprenticeship as a builder in 1975. We built some beautifully architecturally designed homes in affluent areas. I mean, real thought went into the designs of these places and they were built for a lifetime and made from natural, beautiful materials and timbers. Every part of the home was healthy. What intrigues me is back then, the amount of storage we would build into a whole home would now only be the equivalent to what's in a master bedroom of a new home today. So why are we so hell-bent on buying things and having things that we don't really need? What is driving us to consume so much, purchase so many things we'll never use? There's a lot of things that's driving it. Part of it comes down to the kind of Western culture that we have these days, which is very much materialistic. It's very, you know, capitalistic driven where we all want to... At a global level, everyone wants to make money. The the big corporations want to make money. They can do that by selling us products. 
So they use a lot of psychological techniques in their marketing strategies to encourage us to want to buy their new products. We get some psychological benefit from making a new purchase. We get that, I can't remember if it's dopamine or serotonin, but we get the happy chemical release when we make a new purchase. Even if we never wear that pair of jeans, the moment that we bought it, we felt happy and we want to replicate that. So we go and buy new things to make us happy. I mentored a young chap uh, when he was starting his new business. He wanted to create protective clothing and he wanted to make it all out of hemp. He saw a real market there. He's an environmental scientist and he feels that hemp is the answer. He uses an analogy that in Australia, which is a drought-ridden continent, we grow cotton, which needs heavy irrigation. Cotton isn't a native to Australia, so it needs a whole lot of pesticides. He points out that those pesticides end up in the oceans, in the river, and in our freshwater system. They kill native animals, and they do lots of other bad things. I mean, we saw the damage done to the cod and, and the river system and the Murray Darling. And then we send all that cotton... And we'll put it on a big ship, a diesel-powered ship, and we'll send it all the way across to India or China. And then we'll have T-shirts made often in terrible conditions. Then they'll be shipped back on the same diesel ship using heaps of energy again and again. But then without thinking, we'll buy that shirt rather than pay the extra 10 bucks it would cost to buy one that's grown without pesticides and created in our beautiful country. To me, it would give me pleasure to pay the extra 10 bucks to know that we're buying something that's been done properly and considering not just environmental sustainability, not just economic sustainability, but also cultural sustainability. But if you look at it, if you take the time to think about your purchases, where they've come from, how they were created, surely that would give us some sort of serotonin or some sort of good vibe as well. We do know that for people who do make purchasing decisions that are more environmentally sustainable. One of the reasons that people do that is because they do feel good about it. In fact, in, in my research, one of the variables I had, I called self-benefits of plastic avoidance. And I was literally asking people, if you avoid a disposable coffee cup, will you feel good? Do you think you'll feel good? And we know that people who do those behaviors, an element of it is that, yes, I will feel good. Now, not everyone feels good because not everyone is necessarily motivated by those reasons. And for some people, it is more about the cost. And if it does cost $10 more for that pair of jeans that was grown in an environmentally sustainable way, then you know external factors, things like my income level, my socioeconomic status might come into play because I'm more likely to go for the cheaper option. People who are in a whole range of different situations I've been talking a lot about the psychology and kind of what's going on in the head, but there's a lot of contextual and environmental factors that will influence our behaviors as well. So if all of our friends have the other pair of genes, you know, going back to the social context, then we probably want the same things that our friends do. Whereas if all of our friends, I know in a lot of my circles, I live in a green bubble, so a lot of my friends will buy the sustainable option and we'll all share, you know, where you can get the good sustainable options. There's so many different elements. There's the context, there's the, the social context, the physical context, the cost of it. So we're not thinking hard enough about the decisions we make with our dollars to have any influence, really. Because if what society looks like is going to influence you, then all corporations have to do is use that as a marketing tool. 
The cotton t-shirt might be 10 bucks cheaper at the counter, but the damage that it and the money it is going to cost in years to come is very hard to calculate. And as you said, it's just too hard to think about. Yeah, and again, it comes down to that idea of psychological distance as well because we're not making those purchasing decisions or not necessarily making those purchasing decisions thinking about the life cycle assessment of the item we're making it probably a bit more in the moment, you know, standing there deciding between the two items. The main piece of information is probably the price point that's in front of us. Now, a lot of people will go out of their way to find the, the option that they want. And if, an environment, if the environment is a factor in their decision making, then they'll go and find a more environmentally friendly option. But a big part of behavior is what's the easiest option? How can I make this as easy as possible? Why does it frustrate some people like it frustrates me more than others? I mean, I've gone as far as writing a mission statement. I have a checklist, particularly for big purchases, but also for general purposes. I try and support companies that I believe in. And these can be multinationals that I believe in as well. They must share a good part of my mission statement. There are some big corporations in the world. IKEA is one of them. They've made it a mission to become carbon neutral. They have buyback Fridays where they'll take back and trade all the furniture that you have purchased in the past and will break it down and then recycle it. I see that as a great way to start, really turning a corner. How do we get that emotional response? How do we get that same serotonin I get from a small purchase from a locally grown uh, manufacturer? How do we enable ourselves to get that same response from the big corporations that are making the big difference? Is there a way that can happen? Or is it the sort of thing that we have to pair with something that we do as a habit, like what you said before about the phone and the plastic bag? So I think from a, a business perspective, one of the big things we are seeing is a shift towards more sustainable business operations, essentially. IKEA is a great example because this was where a problem was identified with their products that they broke down really easily and they were essentially ending up in landfill and creating huge amounts of waste. And rather than turning up their nose at the problem, the company decided to take on some of the responsibility by changing their practices. And I think it's a great example of where, you know, business and individuals can work together and both change their practices. So individuals can still buy things from IKEA, but you want to bring you need to bring it back at the end of life so that something can be done with it and it's not just going to landfill. At a global level, we probably are seeing a bit of a shift in terms of global norms around environmental issues. The worse the problems are getting, the more people are starting to become aware of it, the more that businesses start to bring up initiatives or governments start to bring up initiatives that don't just bring our attention to it, but also maybe bring up policies which force us to make different behavioral decisions, the more we as individuals can change our behavior to align with those. So, you know, a lot of states and even Coles and Woolworths have banned plastic bags, banned free lightweight plastic bags, which meant that consumers were forced to change their behavior. So they're forced to interrupt those habits that they had and they were forced to pick a new behavior or to, to form new habits. One of the ways we can break old habits is by having a big moment of change, we call them. Some of the key moments of change are things like graduating from high school and starting to work or moving house or getting married, those kind of lifestyle changes. But introducing a new policy can also be a big moment of change if it interrupts a habit that we have. 
And those moments are the great times to try and introduce new habits. So around the time that Victoria banned plastic bags, for example, um, Sustainability Victoria introduced their jingle that was this whole idea of trying to pair an old habit with a new habit. And that was linking the jingle of heads and shoulders, knees and toes with bags, wallet, keys and phone. So it literally built on that habit that people already had and tried to say, look, your old habits are being interrupted. Here's a new one you can do. We'll try and make it memorable for you to build on that. It's amazing. You're saying it beautifully. I mean, society thrives when you challenge it. And whilst Coles and Woolies and companies like IKEA are making what seem like not huge steps, what it's doing is making us have to change. You've got to work out a way to get to the supermarket with your recycled bag. And that's developing your brain, thinking, researching, innovating, developing. And that's what's going to give us a stronger society across the board. Not only do we start to wind back some of the damage that we're doing with environmental problems, we're actually increasing the output of our brain by researching, developing and innovating better ideas. It's a win-win. So if you had to put someone in charge of changing our habits, is it media or is it corporation or is it the individual? Oh, so I'm going to cop out and say everyone's got a role to play. (laughs) I know that's a huge cop out, but I think that when you have the combined efforts from top down and bottom up together, you will end up with the best results. So when you have governments and businesses implementing policies that are sustainable, so good for the environment, good for the economy and good for society, but you also have individuals on the ground who are starting grassroots movements to raise awareness or change behaviors, when you have them happening from both angles, you're more likely to get that kind of silent majority or the the passive majority in the middle you're more likely to get them moving as well and we can all move together as a society. So I'm completely cheating by saying everyone's got a role to play. And I think media is a good tool for kind of bringing the two of them together. I don't think you're copping out. I think what you've said is really smart (laughs) because there are a few big corporations now that see the damage that has been done. But it's that wave of consumer dollars going with those corporations that's going to give this thing real momentum. And then we'll find when the corporations realise that that's the way we've got to go, then they'll innovate. They'll go that way more efficiently and they'll make it easier. And that's when we'll start to turn back the tide, so to speak. I remember, I think I saw a documentary, I can't remember which one it was. There was the line in there about every purchasing decision that we make as a consumer is us making a vote as well. And if we decide to put our dollars towards the options that are more sustainable, then we're going to essentially push the businesses that way as well. Love it. Let me ask you this. There is so much science out there that tells us that the planet is warming up and that that is going to have catastrophic results for us as a society. Are there people out there who simply don't believe that or are they choosing not to believe that? That's a good question. I don't know for certain... The answer, but I do know that the number of people, the percentage of people that don't believe that climate change is real is decreasing. However, that doesn't mean that those people are becoming supportive of taking action. A few of them have just switched their opinion from it doesn't exist at all to, oh, it does exist, but humans are not the cause to, oh, yes, it is happening, but there's nothing we can do now to stop it. I think in those cases, those people are very resistant to wanting to 
do anything to change it because they're happy with the status quo. So what's the first thing we should do to flip our way of thinking? How do we put in the new norms that are going to make us do the right things? How do we recondition ourselves? There are some really simple things that we can do to increase the chances of engaging in you know, what I call desirable behaviours. The Behavioural Insights team from the UK came up with something that they call the EAST framework. And that's the idea of trying to make your desired behaviours easy, attractive, social and timely. Easy is things like selling reusable coffee cups right at the point of sale so that if someone doesn't have one, it's really easy for them to obtain a new one. Making something attractive might mean giving a 50 cent discount off that reusable coffee cup. Making it social is what we've been talking about a lot with social norms, so making sure everyone knows that you're using your reusable coffee cup. And making it timely, again, it kind of comes back to selling those coffee cups at the point of sale because that is the point when someone is going to make that behavioral decision. Or if we can leverage off, you know, a new policy is coming out where we're banning plastic bags, maybe that's a good time to start looking for other ways that we can cut down on single-use plastics or other environmental-friendly behaviours, which is called spillover. There's also the idea of using nudge techniques. Nudge is a concept proposed by Thaler and Sunstein, which is all about guiding people towards a desired behavior like eating healthy, but without restricting their choices. So they use something they call choice architecture, where you literally just rearrange the physical environment like in a supermarket, putting healthy food at eye level and unhealthy food up high or down low. That'll encourage people to go with the one that's easier, which is the one at their eye level. Or if we change the default option to only give people a plastic straw specifically when they request one, instead of giving it to every single person, then a lot more people won't use straws because the default option has been changed. So they can still use one if they want to, but it's again making it as easy as possible for people to engage in those behaviours. And I guess the same could be said about yourself. Don't try and change the world with your decisions in one afternoon. Just think a little bit more about things generally and that won't make it too hard on the brain and we'll start to turn back the tide. Exactly. The biggest thing you can do as an individual is look at your own behavior and if you are doing something that is more sustainable, tell your friends about it. Don't preach to them because we know that preaching can turn people off, but share your success stories, use social modeling. So, you know, do those positive behaviors in front of other people so that they can see that those behaviours are actually becoming normal. And you know what? Change is possible. Wow, so much to unpack here. But it's great to hear that we can trick our brains into patterns that will benefit us and the planet. Next time, we're going to look at this from a slightly different perspective and look at the devastating effect climate change is having on the animal kingdom. I'm Barry Dubois, and this has been Hammer at Home. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or 
anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium.